Amen, and good morning to you. Um, today we'll be in Acts 14. Uh, we'll read from verses 19 through the end of the chapter, and so if you have your Bibles, <clears throat> you can meet me in Acts 14, 19. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Mike Kazarowski. I have the privilege of serving as the lead pastor here at FAC. Uh, if you are new here, I would love the opportunity to meet you after service. Um, we love new people here at FAC, and we want to make it as easy as possible for you to connect. Um, so with that, let's go ahead and turn to God's word and see what he would have for us this morning. Acts 14, we'll read verses 19 through the end of the chapter, verse 28. It says this, Luke writes, But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city and On the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed." Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done within them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Would you pray with me as we begin? And now, Lord, as we commit this time to you, would you speak to us through your word by the power of your Holy Spirit? In your Son, Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Several years ago, um, my oldest daughter, Ella, was outside playing uh, in our backyard when all of a sudden uh, she just started crying uh, just out of nowhere. Uh, she was a toddler at the time. She couldn't have been older, more than two, three, maybe four years old. And um, we had no idea what had, gone, what had happened. Um, but once we settled her down a little bit, we discovered that she had been stung by a bee on her foot as she was walking um, by some dandelions in our yard. Um, this was the first time she had ever been stung by a bee. And as a dad, this was the first time that I had to figure out what to do when your child gets stung by a bee. I had no clue. Uh, for whatever reason, I thought that you had to like check to see if the stinger was still in her foot. Uh, this was just something I guess that I've heard and I've thought, okay, I guess that's what you have to do. Uh, I'm not even sure if that's a thing, but it's what came to mind at the time. Uh, and so we take Ella inside and I grab some tweezers. Uh, and I was told later that tweezers actually can make it worse when trying to remove a stinger. Uh, I didn't really know what I was doing, but I had to at least pretend to know what I was doing as a father, right, as a young dad. Uh, so we get Ella on the bed, right? And I tell Ella, Ella, I just, just want to check to see if the stinger is still in your foot. And as soon as she sees the tweezers... Her eyes got real big, and she just starts freaking out to the point where Sarah had to just kind of hold her down, right? And I've got her ankle, and she's like, 
She's like kicking me, trying to, to stop me from touching her with these tweezers. I, I didn't even touch her foot, but she's just crying and crying. And it, 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 it was super cute, as cute as a screaming child can be, because she kept calling the tweezers the tweezlers. Right? She would say, no, not the tweezlers. Please, not the tweezlers. You would think I was torturing her. Uh, even the next morning, once again, I never touched her foot with the tweezers. The next morning she wakes up though and says, Daddy, my foot hurts. I think it was the tweezlers. <laughs> In that moment, Ella was doing just whatever she could to avoid any pain that she thought uh, was coming her way from these dreadful tweezlers. She was adamant that I didn't touch her foot. It's a silly story, right, of a, of, a, of a girl trying to avoid pain. And you should know, she's eight years old now. I did ask her permission. She's at that age now. I have to ask her permission to talk about her in a, in a sermon. But she said I could tell it. Um, this story of this little girl avoiding pain. But isn't it pretty natural for us to react like that? All right, I, I always say that toddlers just act how adults want to act uh, or how they are acting on the inside. Right? Who, who doesn't want to sprawl all along the grocery floor because they ran out of your favorite cereal? I know that I do. That's for sure. Um, we just wish it was socially acceptable to do the things that toddlers do. As we grow and mature in life, it's still a natural reaction for us to try and avoid pain and suffering of all sorts. Right? We try to avoid physical pain. And so we take medication. Ibuprofen has become our best friend for the sores and the aches in our body. We try to avoid emotional pain. And so we just kind of keep to ourselves, right? If I just stay away from relationships of any kind, I can just detach myself from everyone, then no one will be able to hurt me. We try to avoid spiritual pain. So we don't bother bearing our sins to one another. We don't open up our struggles or about our struggles, because if I do that, it's going to reveal some pretty dark and ugly parts of my heart. And that is going to hurt. In scripture, if there's anybody really in history for that matter, who could be called an expert in suffering, if you will, uh, it would be the apostle Paul. Paul faced some of the most intense moments of persecution and suffering imaginable, one of which we've just read a moment ago. If there's anybody in this world who has reason to avoid suffering, it's Paul. But what's amazing about Paul is despite all that he's experienced, he says that suffering is actually not to be avoided, but rather embraced. In fact, Paul views persecution and suffering as a badge of honor. To him, it was a privilege to suffer. Paul is saying suffering is actually a good thing. It may be intuitive to try and dodge it, if you will, but Paul says, no, I don't try to dodge it. I actually boast in it. And this frames how he counsels and cares for the churches that he has planted that we see in Acts chapter 14. And so I want to walk through this passage together and take a look at it. Um, if you recall, Paul and Barnabas are in the city of Lystra. 
This is where Paul, we looked at this a couple weeks ago, he heals a crippled man and then all of the people gather around and start like worshiping Paul and Barnabas and they sacrifice, they try to sacrifice this oxen to Paul and Barnabas because they thought they were gods. Well, in verse 19, we read that there were some Jews who came up from Antioch and Iconium, which is a great length to go and persecute somebody. And they persuaded these same crowds actually against Paul and Barnabas. What we see here is mob action. The the Jews persuade the crowds against Paul, probably because he's doing all the talking, and they actually stone him. They pick up a bunch of rocks and hurl them at him. And it's probably when he's fallen unconscious that they just drag him out of the city. And the text is very careful to point out that the only reason they stopped throwing rocks at him is because they thought he was dead already. This shows us that it was nothing but the grace of God that Paul actually didn't die that day because he was at the mercy of the crowd. Now, as we've traveled through Acts together throughout the year, we've seen moments where God has miraculously intervened and delivered and rescued his disciples. But not this time. No, God allows it to happen. He lets Paul feel the pain of persecution. He allows Paul to experience suffering. And because the mob thought that Paul was dead, it gives us a pretty uh, good picture of what Paul is looking like. He's probably just a, a bloody mess. He probably has blood just pouring from his head. His face is probably all mangled and messed up. And he has no strength left. No strength left to even stand. This is suffering. And this was not only physical suffering, but imagine the mental and emotional suffering that Paul experiences in this moment. Imagine the deep anguish and the pain of utter humiliation. Many of you know that in some respects, emotional and mental pain is far worse than any kind of physical pain. Yet by God's grace, some disciples come to his side. They, they, they pick him up. They probably tend to him. They clean him up. They restore him to health. And then Paul continues on in his missionary journey to the city of Derby. Now, Derby is the furthest that Paul goes on his missionary journey. Uh, but there's something interesting about where Paul travels to next. I believe we've got an updated map on the screen behind me for those of you who'd like to follow along. And I would like to point out and remind you that they started their journey on the east side of this map, right? In Antioch in Syria. Paul is in Derby, and it would be very easy for him to say, yep, our work is done. It's time to travel back home. I've been left for dead. I'm ready to just go and sleep in my own room. I'm ready to sleep in my own bed. Now, I am an extremely efficient traveler. 
I don't ever want to take the scenic route when we travel. It's just not me. No, I want to take the route that is most efficient. I, I look at this map and I say that the quickest route back home for Paul and Barnabas would be due east from Derby, right back to Antioch and Syria. But in our text, Paul and Barnabas don't do that. Instead, we read in verse 21 that they actually backtrack through Lystra, through Iconium, and through Antioch of Pisidia. In all three of those cities, they faced persecution. They were driven out of those cities. Yet they have the boldness to go back. Why on earth would Paul and Barnabas ever go back and risk returning to those cities that they've already been cast from? Wouldn't it be so much easier and better to avoid the risk of suffering and just go straight home? Of course it would. But for Paul and Barnabas, there's more work to be done in those cities. And it's a different kind of work than when they first traveled through. See, the first time they traveled through, it was actually to evangelize. Their target audience was the unbeliever. But the second time they come through is actually to disciple. They return not for the sake of the unbeliever, but rather for the sake of the believer, for those who did believe. In verse 22, we read that they returned to those cities, strengthening the souls of the disciples and encouraging them to continue in the faith. Why would they need to be strengthened and encouraged at this time? Well, think about the context. If Paul and Barnabas were reviled and slandered in Antioch of Pisidia, what do you think will happen to the believers that stayed behind them? If an attempt was made on Paul and Barnabas' life in Iconium, what does that mean for the young church there? If Paul was literally left for dead in Lystra, What are these young believers thinking? It would be easy, once again, for these new churches to say, yeah, it was fun while it lasted. But if this is what it means to follow Jesus, count me out. No thanks. I'll pass. These are young, impressionable, immature believers. And such continued persecution can make it very difficult for new believers to thrive and flourish. And so Paul and Barnabas purposefully journey back to strengthen them and to encourage them to keep walking in the faith. Just keep going. And how does Paul encourage them and strengthen them in their faith? First, I want you to take notice at what Paul doesn't say to these new believers. He doesn't say, hey, if you follow Jesus, you are going to be blessed with all the the riches you could ever want in this life. If you follow Jesus, you're going to get a new car, or you're going to get a new house, or you're going to get a new job. Life will get easier if you follow Jesus. No, he doesn't say that. You see, there's a very good chance that Paul here is still recovering from his near-death beatdown. This might be speculation, but perhaps as he travels through, he's painted with bruises all over his body. Perhaps his face still shows swelling. He stands there before these young, impressionable believers with a fat lip and a black eye and says, Through many tribulations, we must enter 
the kingdom of God. He tells them this is not going to be easy because suffering goes with the territory. Suffering and Christianity go hand in hand. They are connected to each other. They are tied to each other. They are bound together and inseparable. It is necessary for us to know that the Christian life is one of pain and suffering. It's inevitable in this life. And Paul says, hey, if you want to get to the kingdom of God, that's great, but there's only one road to get there. And let me warn you that that road is harsh. It's a road that's so demanding and so unrelenting that there will be times where you are tempted to just call it quits and walk away. Think about it like this. Jesus said that the only way to the kingdom of God was through him, was to follow him. And so if you recall the little childhood game of follow the leader, where you do just whatever the leader does, that's what Christianity is, a big game of follow the leader. And the leader is Jesus. And so if we're following Jesus in his life, and Jesus, a man of sorrows, laid down his life to suffering and death, even death on a cross, where do you think we're going? So Paul is here in these churches to strengthen them and encourage them. And he does this by explaining that suffering is the road to the kingdom of God. At face value, you may say, well, Paul, that's pretty lousy encouragement. (laughs) Thanks for nothing. That doesn't make me feel any better. But we know from Paul's other writings and even throughout scripture, not just Paul, that the point is not necessarily to make us feel better, but rather the point is to change how we view suffering. Right? Since we have to experience it, we need to change how we see it. As we worship a suffering savior, this will change how we view suffering. And so the Christian experience is not being removed from the rigors of life, but rather leaning into them, embracing them. And the best way to lean into them and embrace our sufferings is to recognize that there is purpose in our suffering. Just as there was purpose in the suffering of Jesus, there is purpose in our suffering. There's many reasons why we suffer, and I would like to spend the rest of our time this morning just walking through a few of these with you uh, this morning. There are more. There's several more, but these are the ones that we have time for. And so first, we suffer so that we may comfort others in suffering. We suffer so that we may comfort others in suffering. Take a look at 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 5. Paul writes, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. You see, our suffering equips us 
and really increases our capacity to comfort others in the same way that God comforted us in a time of need. There's a real sense of empathy here. And you'll notice that Paul never says, well, your suffering is just not that bad. Like, let's be real. It could be worse. It's not that bad. No, he never downplays suffering like many of us do. Right? We play one of those games where we're talking with people about our burdens when we bear our burdens to others and we sit there and say, oh, well, I'm suffering, but it's nothing compared to what others are going through. As if it's some kind of a contest. Yeah, you're right. We may not know suffering like the believers in the Middle East, but at the end of the day, you're still hurting and you still need comfort. And guess what? I have suffered in my life so that I can comfort you in yours. And you have suffered in your life so that you can comfort me in mine. And to downplay your suffering and to really refuse care from people. Listen, if you're sitting here and you're saying, I am just hurting, but I don't want to inconvenience anybody. I don't want to, I don't want anyone to share my burdens. If you're sitting there and that's you, please know that if I had to go through suffering, at least let me use my experience to help you through yours. And I would expect the same from you. We suffer so that we may comfort others in their suffering. Use that. Tap into that if you're struggling this morning. Know that there is a comfort available to you from other believers that we are called to because God comforts us. It's the first reason why we suffer. Second, and similarly, we suffer so that others have an example how to suffer well. Take a look at 1 Peter 5, 8 through 9. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. We suffer so that others may have an example on how to suffer well. There are many pitfalls in this world that one can fall into in the midst of suffering. And there is great comfort in knowing that you are not alone. According to Peter, one of the strategies in resisting the devil is knowing that you are not alone in your suffering. There is someone out there. There is someone even in this room that needs to see you suffer well for their own sake. One pastor I recently listened to said that Christians ought to be the best at everything they do. This isn't a sense of arrogance. It's just we we should strive for excellence in everything we do. And this includes being the best at being sad. We should be the best at being sad. But too many times as believers, we just try to paint this veneer over life. Newsflash, we live in a broken world. As soon as sin entered the world, the moment that sin entered the world, the world was fractured. 
Yet we walk about these very halls and we greet each other and try to act as if everything is okay. Not everything is okay. Yet we try and put on this facade. Oh, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm excellent. Really? You kidding me? You're not suffering like I'm suffering right now? Come on. I need to see you suffer well. And so can we just stop with this veil, this fake veil that we've pulled over trying to fool everyone? Because if you're suffering, it gives me permission to suffer. And I need to see you clinging to God's promises and praising his name when your life is caving in on you. We suffer so that others have an example of how to suffer well. Third, we suffer so that we can suffer more. James 1, 2 through 4, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, not lacking anything, lacking in nothing. Trials of various kinds produce steadfastness, produce endurance. The the trials today, uh, they bolster us up so that we can experience greater trials tomorrow. We, We need the stress of suffering so that we can become stronger. In the late 1980s, there was this research facility built in Oracle, Arizona called the Biosphere. The Biosphere was this huge facility with a glass dome over it, and it was meant to create the perfect living environment for human beings and plants and animal life. Everything was simulated to a T to just have these perfect living conditions. And this ongoing experiment worked fairly well, but there was something odd that would happen in the biosphere. As trees grew larger and larger, eventually they would hit a size where they would just fall over. These giant trees all of a sudden would just topple over without any particular reason. And this absolutely baffled the scientists for the longest time until they realized that they had missed something. The only natural element that they forgot to simulate in the biosphere was wind. And they discovered that as trees actually experience the stress from wind, as they experience the push from wind, this actually causes their root system to grow deeper into the soil, which actually in turn allows the trees to grow taller and stronger. Christian weakness, Christian struggle, Christian persecution always promotes strengthening. It always promotes strengthening. God uses our suffering to produce endurance and steadfastness. That's number three. Number four, we suffer so that we would depend on God. So that we would depend on God. 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 9. So to keep me from being conceited, this is Paul writing. So to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the, in the flesh, 
a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul in this passage is saying, hey, this thorn in my side was given to me so I wouldn't be conceited. We don't know what the thorn is. We may have some ideas, but it's some kind of suffering. In other words, Paul says, the purpose of my suffering was so that I could take attention off of myself to keep me from being conceited and actually turn to God in dependence. It causes us to turn away from our own resources and tap into God's resources. There is a suffering that we can experience where we say at the end of the day, I've got nothing left in the tank. I'm at the end of my resources. I'm at the end of my rope. I am barren and the world is colorless. And the reason we feel this way is because suffering doesn't care about you. Your suffering doesn't care about you. Your suffering doesn't care about your well-being. Your suffering doesn't care whether this is a convenient time or not. But while your suffering does not care about you and your well-being, your heavenly father does. And he has resources for you to use. And while you are at the end of your rope, Jesus comes and says, hey, come to me, all you who are weary, all you who are burdened, and I'll give you the rest that you seek. I have the resources, so would you just come to me in your suffering, and I will give you rest. You may have heard that popular saying, right, that God will not give you more than you can handle. And I am here to tell you that is an utter lie. Because that phrase actually turns us inward. As if there's something that I can mine within my heart to overcome what I need to handle. Right? And God says, no, I allow a lot of things to come your way that you can't handle so that you'll come to me. I'm going to use your suffering so that you'll turn yourself to, to me. Right? So that when the, the walls come crashing down on our life, the answer is not within. No, God gives us the grace. God gives us the power to endure. And so while that phrase points us inward, Scripture, contrary to that, says, no, you need to be pointed Godward. You, you need to point to God. The answer isn't in yourself for salvation. So why on earth would it be within yourself and suffering? Which is why Paul boasts in weakness. Because Paul's saying, if I'm weak, if I'm experienced suffering, this actually glorifies God because it demonstrates his saving power. We suffer so that we would depend on God. Fifth, we suffer so that we may experience the fullness of Christ. We suffer so that we may experience the fullness of Christ. Second Corinthians 4, 8 through 11. Once again, Paul writes, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. 
always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. We come close to the brink of disaster, but we're never destroyed. Simply put, this verse says, hey, when we suffer, we are becoming more like Jesus. Having experienced suffering like he did on this earth, we are shaped, we are molded into his likeness. We come to know God the Father. Uh, when we come to know God the Father, it's like we come to him as this, this untapped block of stone. It's this heart of stone, and God creates a sculpture in you in the likeness of his son Jesus. And how do you suppose he sculpts us? by chiseling. And with each whack of the hammer, there's pain as he chips away. But the more pain we experience, the less we look like that old block of stone. And the more we look like Jesus. And the more that we look like Jesus, the more we know the fullness of God and his presence. Elizabeth Elliot who was a widow to Jim Elliott, who was a famous missionary martyred in Ecuador. She lost her husband at a very young age. And there was a book published last year based off um, some talk notes, a transcription of the talks that she gave at a conference when she was still living. This book that was published last year is called Suffering is Never for Nothing. And after all Elizabeth Elliott lost and endured, In the book, she says that the deepest things that I have learned in my own life have come from the deepest suffering. And out of the deepest waters and the hottest fires have come the deepest things that I know about God. We experience suffering. We suffer so that we may experience the fullness of Christ. And finally, we'll land the plane with this one. Sixth, we suffer so that we would long for Jesus' return. We suffer so that we would long for Jesus' return. Romans 8, 18 through 19. And then I'll jump down to Romans 8, 22 through 23. Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing, for the revealing of the sons of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Here in Romans 8, Paul explains that we and all of creations are experiencing the pains of childbirth. What a peculiar illustration. I started this morning with a story about Ella, and so I'll finish it with another one as well. Um, When Ella was born, at one point during the laboring process, the day that Ella was born, our doctor came in to um, check on my wife. And right before she left the room, the doctor was staring at me. And I kid you not, she said, I'm wondering about how we're going to get that baby out as I look at the size of your husband's head. 
I thought it was funny too, so I laughed. But the doctor didn't laugh back. She was serious. And so you could imagine how Sarah's feeling at this point. Thinking, I've got to get this baby out. This this is going to be painful. For anyone who's delivered a baby or has even witnessed someone deliver a baby into the world, you know the considerable amount of suffering that occurs. Especially when your husband has a big head. But oh, the joy. The joy that comes after the suffering. The joy of, of, of holding that little one in your hands. How do we endure the pain of childbirth? We endure because we know what comes next. We know the joy. We must remember what Paul says here in Acts 14.22 in our passage. What's key in this passage is that, yes, we walk through tribulation, but eventually, eventually in Christ, through Christ, we enter the kingdom of God. Don't forget that part. Don't let that kind of tail off because that is Paul's main point is that yes, you will be beaten. Yes, you will suffer. Yes, this life stinks. And yes, we have to walk through that. But remember, eventually we get to the kingdom of God. We know the ending. We know the destination. We can endure all things because the treasure at the end of the road is far greater than the tribulation you face on the road. Yes, we cannot have the kingdom of God without tribulation. We cannot separate the two, but you also cannot compare them. They're incomparable. If we truly understand the life-giving nature of the gospel, the life-giving nature of the good news of Jesus Christ, we will never say in this world that the riches we inherit are not worth the suffering that I experience today. That will never happen if you are truly in Christ. And if that does happen and you walk away, then you were never in Christ then you never tasted the glory that is the son of God. That is how rich and powerful and how great a reward the kingdom of God is that you are willing to go through anything, even death to be able just to get a morsel of that, to get a taste of the riches that are going to come in the kingdom of God. The present sufferings of this time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. How wonderful that day will be when Jesus returns to gather his own and deliver them into the promised kingdom of God. And oh, how much sweeter will that life be having tasted the pains of death. I can't remember who said it, but a quote that I jotted down some time ago said that one second of glory will extinguish a lifetime of sorrow. Please know that suffering may be inevitable, but it has purpose. So if you are just struggling here today, if you are just struggling here this morning, you have to know that if you are in Christ, God does not waste your sorrows. All of the hurt, all of the pain, all of the despair, all of the misery does not go to waste. 
All of the tears that you cried last night, not a single one of them drops to the floor in vain. And if you need any more proof that God uses a man's deepest sorrows, then look no further to the cross. Look to Jesus who endured the greatest suffering a man could experience in order to obtain your salvation. That's the spectrum. You have a man who experienced the greatest pain a man could suffer to gain the greatest reward a man could gain. And our experience falls everywhere in between. It was Jesus' sacrifice on the cross that earned your ticket, your entry into the kingdom of God. And he invites you to come to him, all who are weary and burdened, and he will give you rest. Would you pray with me? And Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, uh, that while you allow suffering, you don't let it go to waste. Father, this world is a confusing place in a confusing time. And so many times, Father, without knowing the background or what's going on behind the curtain, we can become distracted. And we could be tempted to to just walk away from you, Lord. But we praise you, Father, that while we don't know what's going on, you are sovereign. And you do. And we know that in your sovereignty, there is purpose in our suffering. And the word tells us that there was purpose in Christ's suffering. We praise you for that, Father. We thank you for that. And in your Son's holy name we pray. Amen.